Welcome to Stuff from the Science Lab from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey guys, welcome to the podcast. This is Alice Nottermilk, the science editor at HowStuffWorks.com. And this is Robert Lamb, science writer at HowStuffWorks.com. Today's topic of space elevators reminds me of the children's classic, Charlie in the Greek Glass Elevator, which yep. I understand that you never read, Robert. Well, no, but I saw the movie, and they have the elevator at the end of the movie, right? Right. So there's Charlie in the Chocolate Factory. Right. You know, Johnny Depp and all that stuff. But what? then there's... No, no, no. The, the, not Johnny Depp. Um, Gene Wilder. That's that's Charlie in the Chocolate Factory. Well, right, so, right. Really I, yeah, yeah. Okay, point taken. And then the sequel is Charlie in the Great Glass Elevator. Okay. Right? So when you open the opening scene of Charlie in the Great Glass Elevator... Is, I think it was called a Wonkavator in the uh, movie. Okay. No, okay. Okay. Well, so this, this mega structure, the elevator, is floating in the sky, and we see um, Charlie Bucket and Willy Wonka and all the various grandparents, and even Charlie's parents uh, are all crowded into this elevator. And this is what I was thinking of when we were preparing today's topic for the, uh, the space elevator. Because the uh, space elevator uh, is not uh, all that fanciful an idea. Like, it actually makes a lot of sense and uh, is something that we will probably see in the uh, decades ahead. We hope to see. You know, I got really excited about this topic when we were researching it. I'm not necessarily a space junkie. I'm very excited about the different projects we're pursuing or not pursuing, as the case may be. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, and it seems to be more the case these days. But um, the space elevator really got me fired up just because, yeah, it does seem kind of doable. So yeah. let's give you a little history on the space elevator. Um, we have the idea from one Russian gentleman, Yuri Artsutinov. Excuse me, Yuri, if we uh, messed up your last name. And he came up with this in 1960, according to the Space Word Foundation. And the Space Ward Foundation is going to come up if you do any research into space elevators. And it's just a nonprofit organization that's dedicated to space elevators, furthering space science, technology, all that good stuff. Just a, a just a, a grassroots nonprofit interested in building an elevator into outer space. <laughs> gotcha. So you can go to spaceelevator.com and read Yuri's 1960 paper titled To the Cosmos by Electric Train. It was published in Pravda, the old Soviet Union newspaper. And this is what kills me. It was published as a Sunday supplement for the kids. Uh, as far as I understand it, it has this kind of cool, fun kid graphics. Well, in a way, it's kind of sad, though, because you think back and it's like, oh, a time when kids were interested in science. Except uh, for you kids listening, of course. You're good. So Yuri was a pretty smart guy, and he wasn't really satisfied with rockets as a means for getting to space. So here's an Which excerpt. is reasonable, because rockets are, it's like whatever you're sending into space, it's like strapping it on the end of an explosion, you know? Right. And then there's a the whole huge expenditure of fuel. and You're you messing to, up the atmosphere. You have to protect passengers from high acceleration, all this good stuff. Yeah. But let's read you an excerpt. Oh, yes, yes. And um, Robert has volunteered to do this in his best Russian accent. Yes. Robert, feel free to abbreviate the quote. I got okay. a little overzealous with old Yuri. All right, here we go. <clears throat> Preparation for the cosmic launching of a contemporary rocket requires not one day, but more than one month. Yes, of course, these are just the first steps man is taking. I'm sounding a little like Dracula, so I'm going to stop (laughs) and just continue in a normal voice. The first steps man is taking beyond the limits of his own planet. Still, in the future, the construction of rockets will not change in principle. And even in the future, the first stage of of the flight of a cosmic liner will be accompanied by the furious effort of straining engines, by the immense expenditure of fuel, by protecting passengers from high acceleration. Right. So all sorts of crazy stuff. Yeah, because Grandma's going to want to go into space, too. Heck yeah, Grandma wants to go into space. 
And so, and so Yuri winds up saying, flight into the cosmos with the help of a rocket will never be like an outing on a boat or a trip on a, a tram. Yeah. And then he wonders, is this the only method for cosmic flights? And thus the space elevator, thanks to Yuri. And the the fabulous thing about it, too, is that it's it's such a kind of like common sense answer. Like you can imagine the first guy that brought it up was just like sent out of the room, you know, because <laughs> he's like, hey, guys, I know these rockets are great, but can we just build like an elevator, an elevator that goes from sp- space? It's, it's like when I was on vacation. You know, we- you, you get on at the lobby <laughs> and then you just push GEO for geosynchronous orbit. Yeah. Like when I was on vacation, we went to see this um, um, Hellfire Pass thing in uh in Thailand. Okay. And, uh, and like there were some, some, some very old people and, and God bless them for being brave enough to come on the trip. But they were like, is there going to be an elevator so we can ride back from the bottom? <laughs> you know, it's like, it's a ridiculous question to ask. And it seems like a ridiculous question to ask of, of space travel, but it, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So for a while they were thought of as kind of ridiculous and they'd really just existed in old Yuri's head and the realm of uh, sci-fi. Yeah. As you guys C. might know. Clark was yeah. a big uh, fan of this. Yeah, and he wrote about it in Fountains of Paradise. But two things moved space elevators firmly out of fantasy and into the realm of possibility. And those two things were, according to Space Ward, the discovery of carbon nanotubes in 19, in the early 1990s. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Bradley Edwards engineering research in 2001. So those were two of the things that really made space elevators something that yeah, we can hope for. We would have, we, we had the, we had an idea about how the engineering would work. Mm-hmm. It's not like just going out and piling up uh, cement blocks and two-by-fours to uh, reach uh, uh, orbit. I think part of the problem for me when we, we were researching this podcast was I just think of an elevator as a structure being encased within a building. Mm-hmm. So that's not the case with the space elevator. Yeah, it's more like a vehicle that climbs a super strong tether right? for miles and miles and miles. Yeah, let's give some details on that tether because that's – pretty important part of the whole space elevator construction. Yeah, the thing that really that I had to look up to really put it in perspective for, for me um, is the, the sheer distance we're talking here. All right. Currently, the tallest structure in the world is the Burj Khalifa okay. in Dubai. And uh-huh. you've probably seen pictures of this. Super tall building. Oh, is that um, the Seven Star Hotel? It might be. Okay. It's, yeah, it probably is. It's in Dubai. It's probably eight. <laughs> um, but, uh, all right, this structure is, uh, 2,717 feet tall. That's roughly half a mile. Okay. The Dubai structure. Yes, the Dubai structure. All right. Uh, geosynchronous, uh, altitude is 124 miles. Okay. Okay. So you'd have to stack, um, 248 um, of those Dubai super hotels on top of each other just to reach, um, you know, satellite territory. But that's not even the, the, the distance of the space elevator. The space elevator, according to, uh, to some predictions, would be 62,000 miles in length. Right. And that's... it would be made from lightweight carbon nanotubes, mm-hmm. um, which, again, according to some people, might be 100 times stronger than steel. And then it's going to be secured to a station on Earth on one end. Mm-hmm. So depending on who you talk to, specifications for that ribbon vary. According to the Institute for Scientific Research, the ribbon may be three feet wide and thinner than a sheet of paper, which is insane. Something that's going to be schlepping you up to space and thinner right. than a sheet of paper and maybe carrying three. all sorts of uh, expensive material and grandmas. And then if you wanted to increase uh, the amount of stuff you're bringing to space, the payload you're bringing to space, then you would want to scale up your space elevator by increasing the size of your tether, which mm-hmm. makes sense. Now, this next part really just floored me when I was, when we were researching it. And that's, um, when you talk about the 
how the counterweight stays in space. Right. Like I ran, this is the simple explanation that I ran across from a scientist and he was like, all right, imagine that your fist is the, is the planet. All right. right. And then you have a bit of dental floss, you know, that's dental the tether. Floss, okay. And then that dental floss is tied to like a little, um, I don't know, like a, a little golf ball or something. Right. All right. And then you like hold your fist over your head and you just start swinging that golf ball around. And, and of course the golf ball doesn't crash into your fist because it's swinging around and around and around. Right. And the rotation the, helps yeah, it Yeah, the up. rotation and all. And that's the same principle, essentially, with the space elevator. And it's so simple that it, it you know, it, it, it's one of those that kind of floors you. You're like, that can't be right. That just sounds way too simple. Right. And we have the original space elevator guy, the Russian um, Yuri, to thank for working this out. So we all know that the Earth's force of attraction lessens in proportion to the square of the distance. And centrifugal force grows with the increase in distance. So mm-hmm. what that means is that at about a distance of 42,000 kilometers, centrifugal force turns out to be an equal to the force of gravity. Okay. So that's kind of cool. I never knew that. Yeah. And then the Institute for Scientific Research says that by using the end of the ribbon like a slingshot, you could send pretty serious payloads to the moon, Mars, and beyond. That's so awesome. Yeah, it's like if they're, if you're you're an astronaut, you're the ant. That's on the little golf ball that's tied to the dental floss that's <laughs> yeah. attached to my fist. And then you're swinging it around and then whoosh, ant goes flying and on his way to Mars. We are the ants. Mm-hmm. Right. So let's talk about the cars. You have these cars or climbers, as they're called, that are riding up the ribbon. And they're meant to carry some serious weight. Mm-hmm. And they themselves may weigh up to 20 tons. So in one draft of the idea, the cars attached to the ribbon have electric motors. And they get their power from a station on the ground by way of laser beams. It's kind of a setup like a ski lift was one comparison I heard. And then another idea is to use solar power instead of laser beams to power the cars. Either way, you don't want a huge engine on board because that kind of negates the whole great thing about a space And once you get high enough, the solar energy makes perfect sense because you're not going to have to deal with uh, with cloud cover. Right, right. So inside, the cars could be roomier because of the relatively inexpensive cost per pound. Mm -hmm. So great news for grandma. She might have, you know, sleeping in eating accommodations within the car. Yeah. And some of the estimates that I've looked at, um, they show that our like first space elevator, mm-hmm. whenever we finally build it, could like bring 13 tons of grandmas. <laughs> like, I don't know if that's all the grandmas, but it's a large, a large assembly of grandmas. Yeah, it is indeed. But you raise an important point in that we're not going to be sending grandmas up first. We're going to be sending all sorts of... <laughs> it's important to stress that grandmas will not be the first to take the space elevator. No matter how many nights they camp out to get yeah. tickets to be the first in line. For- it sounds like a great Twilight Zone episode, though, where it's like all the grandmas are called in for the first <laughs> space elevator ride. What's up? Right. We're going to be sending, you know, different things for NASA and mm-hmm. the European Space Agency and all sorts of other folks are in line before the grandmas. I saw a um, there's a I saw an article online talking about the roadmap to the uh, space elevator, which okay. showed like some of the ways we'll test it, which is kind of interesting and also kind of common sense. It involves like using blimps to test like the early section of it. OK. And then using satellites to test the higher portion of it until you reach the point where you pull, you know, unroll sort of the whole thing. So. That's pretty awesome. Would you be a guinea pig for that? No, no, of course not. <laughs> not I'm not a big fan of heights. So. so you might be wondering how fast the cars are ascending. I certainly was. And I heard, according to Space War, that there's uh, roughly 100 miles per hour is the speed they would be going up. Okay. Yeah, some of the estimates I was looking at were talking about maybe a week or so on board that thing. So I'm guessing they'll probably some Heck of that. of a view to look at the whole yeah, time. Yeah, but there's some of that 13 tons, though, you're going to have to have your snack bars and your, you know, like places for the grandmas to stay, you know. And how would the space bathroom work for grandma? Ooh, yeah. Because that's tricky, wouldn't you think? 
Yeah, it would uh, on several levels. Um, and then, of course, we have the ground station, right? Let's mm-hmm. not forget about the ground. It has to and be. And where's that going to be? Well, the best scenario, as far as I've heard, is in the ocean, right? Because you want to have, um, you want, you don't want anybody getting close to it, right? So the ocean is the best place to have like a hundred mile no fly zone. Mm-hmm. Keep planes from accidentally running into it. Um, no, you know, to keep your, you know, villainous folk away from it in case they want to blow it up. People. Yeah. Crazy people, you know, anti space elevator, uh, terrorist, et cetera. Um, and then also if something goes wrong, I mean, it's also, it's another reason to stay back from it, right? It's a, it's a pretty big investment with new technology. Right, right. And then the other thing is that it needs to be the, near the equator, right, Robert? Correct. Which also has the benefit of, uh, of, of having, of there being fewer like catastrophic storms in that area. So you don't have to worry about like hurricanes, uh, blowing your uh, tether around. Gotcha. Right. So there will be a bit of movement, kind of like a guitar string for the tether. Mm-hmm. Which would be a tad bit unsettling well, if yeah, you were well, ascending. Yeah, but it's kind of like, you know, you want a little, uh, a little give and take even with a skyscraper. Of so you, you definitely know. want some give and take with something that stretches, uh, 62,000 miles. Yes, intuitively I know that, but I'm still saying that I might be a little bit frightened when that thing starts yeah, to it, swing in the wind. Yeah, it a certainly bit. wouldn't, wouldn't help. Yeah, so why a space elevator? What's the motivation behind it? I think you guys know the answer to this, but, um, one of the people who's interested in this is a company called Liftport, and their goal is to be the folks behind mass transportation system that allows people to take advantage of space and mm. all the resources that space offers, whether it's, you know, mining asteroids or helium three. I mean, they want to be the transportation system for even the smallest entrepreneur. Right. And the other great thing about a space elevator is not just like physical, um, cargo, but it would be a way to transport, uh, energy. A way to uh, to transmit communications, um, you know, and uh, and information. It's uh, you know, it becomes a a highway for for all those things. Right. We break free of the Earth and we start colonizing other worlds. Mm-hmm. We establish lunar stations. We finally get to go to Mars. Yeehaw! Or uh, actually, um, uh, if you, we put a satellite into orbit and we make a man and some robots watch bad movies on it, like Mystery Science Theater three thousand, they <laughs> they have a space elevator of sorts in that show. It was called the Umbilicus. And they would, uh, Dr. Clayton Forrester would send the movie up through that. So there's another sci-fi example of a space elevator for you. Right. They're all over science fiction. Oh, and there was also one in a book I just read called Fearsome Engine mm-hmm. by Ian M. Banks. Okay. I highly recommend that to anybody who's into, uh, um, into science fiction because there's a whole lot of like craze, like it's got Don't cyberpunk. Don't give away anything. I'm not going to give any way, anything away except to say it has lots of cyberpunk stuff in it. It has uh, stuff having to do with like um, with civilizations on the Kardashev scale. It has stuff to do with like megastructures. Um, and there's in this particular world, there was at one point a space elevator, but it's long since been taken down. Well, that's a pretty glowing recommendation. So, what are we talking about for a uh, price to get Grandma on the space elevator? The price? Yeah, I think it was a hundred dollars per pound. So that's going to be a price of a pretty serious plane ticket plus. Um, luggage, right? Yeah, so say well, you're maybe 150 pounds, you want to bring 50 pounds of luggage. Yeah. Then you're talking roughly 20,000. Wow. 20 G. 20 G for you, grandma, if you're 150 pounds. Wait, but why is grandma bringing 50 pounds of stuff in orbit? I don't get that. Does grandma need that many things? I just, like, how much I don't know. Maybe she has a lot of birthday cards to send out and stuff with $5 bills. I'm not really sure. I was just saying, because you think of 50 pounds as the limit, you know, for when you stick your... Well, I guess you got to bring a spacesuit. 
space food, all that stuff. It ends up weighing and snacks. It, yeah, but you know the thing is, like sending anything into orbit, like using rockets, that's the huge price. Is the huge part of the price tag is like you want to send food into space. It's really expensive because it has to you know ride on top of a rocket. So it is as inflated as this price might sound. It's a bargain. It's total to, bargain uh, to sending it up in a rocket. Yeah, and the price of building it, some would argue, is a bargain as well. That's going to be around the realm of ten billion. That's one estimate I read. Yeah. Well, we've we've spent that much on things that were far less beneficial to the human race before. So I think no doubt I'm all for yeah. it. Ten million, let's sock it away. Start saving right now. Um, so you may be thinking this is kind of fringe, and yes, it is far off, but it's not fringe. Lest you think it is fringe, let's talk about some of the people and agencies that are involved in this. We've got, you know, NASA and the Los Alamos National Laboratory. We have folks from MIT, UC Berkeley, Lockheed Martin, European Space Society, all sorts of people. And they all get together every year. In fact, they're holding an August 2010 Space Elevator Conference in Redmond, Washington, in case you guys want to attend. I just give the image of a bunch of scientists building a space elevator like out in a field. Yeah, I don't think this is it. I think it's got a little bit more to it. So among other things, they're going to be focusing on the four pillars of space elevator development. And those are science and technical aspects, political, that, social. Yeah, because obviously there's a, you know, like, how do you arrange to have this giant section of, uh, of ocean that you're going to, uh, erect it in? How do you, um, you know, convince people that it's not going to wreck their satellites, uh, et cetera? Right. How do you figure out who gets to ride on it? Yeah, and who owns who's it? stuff? Mm-hmm. And who gets all the, Benefits from it, you know, cost-wise. Yeah, you're you're basically building a gateway to like the eighth continent. You know, if you consider space or the moon the eighth continent, and then it's like who owns the eighth continent, right? So another thing that they're going to be doing at this space elevator conference is they're going to be holding a materials engineering challenge that will play into the space elevator development, and it's called the Strong Tether Competition. I know you guys are wondering where I'm going with this, but I promise you it has a point. So this is a NASA-sponsored challenge in which teams enter some super strong tether that's subjected to a pull test, right? Mm-hmm. So in order to win the $2 million prize, that's no small chump change, the tether has to exceed the strength of the best available commercial tether by 50% with no increase in mass. I wonder what they have pulling on it. Like, do they have those big, thick guys from the World's Strongest Men competition? That would be <laughs> amusing. I don't know. But at the 2009 Space Elevator Conference, no one participated except for one uh, exhibition-only team. And they brought with them a 2.2-meter length of carbon nanotube. So carbon nanotube, you guys will remember, is Mm -hmm. what some people have proposed building the uh, elevator's tether out of. So according to NASA, this loop that the team brought with them failed at a level that's well below expected strength. But the fact that they made the carbon nanotube loop was good news. Because we need that ribbon for our space elevator. So the main reason we're focusing so much on the tether is, of clearly, like that, know, it's a yeah, key component. Yeah, that's the space elevator, in essence. Yeah. But the materials technology just isn't quite there yet. When will we have it, though? We're looking at what? Uh, October 21st, 2031? Yeah, they have a running clock on their website, and they, they've slated October 21st as the date, 2031. I got to say, I'm pretty excited. Yeah. Yeah, I bet they'll maybe they'll have the the deal where you can like uh you know be like uh, going up in space um on the on the Virgin ship, you know. You can buy your tickets ahead of time before the thing's even built. Oh, you bet. Yeah, yeah there's going to be a lot of hype before that. Hey, so in case you guys have uh, nothing to do before 2031, why not go to the homepage and check out how space elevators will work or how space tourism works or how the Google Lunar X Prize works. Yeah, we have a lot of great great space content, so check it out. And we're constantly throwing those links up uh, to, to some of these uh, space-related content. 
uh, pieces on our uh, Twitter and our Facebook. That's uh, Stuff from the Science Lab on Facebook, Lab Stuff on Twitter. I also do a little stuff for uh, Discovery Space, so I'd like to throw that onto the uh, website as well. Yeah, you're pimping yourself there, Robert. Nice work. So I got a little listener mail that I would love to share. This Uh, could be my favorite ever. Piece of listener mail, although we have gotten some good ones. And it seems to be trending that we are getting very interesting pictures from you all, which I really like. Yeah, in, in the past, we've received pictures of, of people's uh, pet rats, uh, which are marvelous, uh, pictures of uh, of uh, listeners' uh, composting efforts. Oh, we got that one with the uh, lizard's regenerated tail, which was pretty awesome. That was good, yeah. But then, but then this this morning it was uh, it was something taking a, little a whole more new direction, yeah. and this one came from Jenna in Vancouver, and Jenna writes, "Hey, I just started listening to this podcast and listening to back episodes, so you have to excuse me for sending an email on an old one. We forgive you, Jenna." But I really do have something to share on your podcast about hookworm. Three years ago, I caught canine hookworm on a beach in Ghana. This has a different life cycle in humans because we're dead-end host. So instead of going to the lungs and intestine, it pretty much just crawls around your foot. (laughs) This was probably the worst experience of my life as it is incredibly itchy. Luckily, by the time it really manifested itself, I was in Scotland. Listen, she's in Ghana and then she's in Scotland. Jenna, you are a world traveler. Bringing parasites all over the place. I know, right? So she's in Scotland, and they have cold water, because the only way I could sleep was to soak both feet until they went numb up to the ankle, at which point I could sleep for two hours before getting up to numb them again. Well, okay, so she she talks a little bit more about the process, but she wraps up and says, now it's just a super fun and totally gross story that I have pictures to prove. And indeed, Jenna sent us the pictures of her foot with the hookworm, and it is awesome. I'm about to get the photo out again and look at it again, just to re-experience it. And, oh, it is so gross. It's just, oh, I mean, no offense. Well, you sent this photo in knowing that we would be grossed out by your feet, and your feet are gross in this photo. Because you can see... I'm sure they're lovely now, though, Jenna. Well, it's... Well, maybe we can put this on the blog. Or <laughs> we but, would have to ask permission, but, but yeah, maybe. Well, well it's not just, for the faint of heart. It really isn't. It's like if it's little worms crawling under the skin, kind of, and it kind of looks, but it also kind of looks like um, like poison ivy. Um, but you can see the path of the worm, uh, which is awesome. Yeah. Like you can just yeah, because the whole thing is like they used to have to like like get it out and like spin it around a little stick, and you can just imagine somebody doing it to these feet. Yeah. Yeah. So, th- so that was disgusting. And <laughs> Thank awesome. Thank you for sending that. Yeah, thanks, Jenna. And that's all we got for listener mail today. So I think that wraps it up. Yeah. Uh, Do you guys have thoughts on space worms? <laughs> space worms? Well, yeah, if you have thoughts on space worms, send them in because I would love to know what that entails. But if you have thoughts on just parasitic worms or space. Or space those, elevators, yeah, which is what I meant separate to say. And, uh, and indeed, if you have some sort of horrific infection and you have photos that you're rather proud of, send them in. I guess. I will look at them. Allison Robert may not. I will definitely yeah. look at them. I love this stuff. Yeah, send us an email at sciencestuff at howstuffworks.com. Thanks, guys. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Want more How Stuff Works? Check out our blogs on the howstuffworks.com homepage. <laughs>